morning we'll be focusing especially on the first 15 verses of chapter 3. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, let me begin by saying that this is a very tough text to understand and to appreciate. It was very tough for me as I wrestled with it during the week, and it has been very tough for very many Christians, and possibly especially in the Reformed tradition. And the reason that it's tough and even unsettling is because Paul seems to be making at least two controversial assertions. One is that gaining Christ and being found in Him and attaining ultimately to the final resurrection are things that we must work for and strive for. You can see that in verses 8, 9, and especially in 11, he says, that by any means possible I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Or verse 12, I I press on to make it my own. Or verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So Paul seems to be saying salvation, being counted in Christ, is something that needs to be striven for and pressed on for. And so we wonder, what does Paul mean, that, mean by that? In what sense do we work or strive or press on to be counted with Christ? What kind of work is entailed in that language? The second controversial assertion that Paul makes is sort of the flip side of, of the first one. If Paul is talking about attaining to the resurrection by any means possible, as he says it, or, or straining forward or, or pressing on, that seems to imply that his salvation is not yet a sure thing. And that seems to be what Paul is saying even explicitly. Look at verse 12. He says, not that I have already attained this, but I press on to make it my own. Again in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have already made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards that goal. So those two factors make this a a difficult passage for many Christians and probably especially for Reformed Christians because we know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And yet Paul seems to be saying that there's a specific kind of effort that needs to be expended in order to be saved and that our salvation is not yet a sure thing. So our goal for this morning is to to try and understand what Paul means by what he says here and therefore what kind of effort and straining and pressing on he might be calling us also to do. The theme for the the sermon is, is this, gaining Christ, as Paul portrays it, is a daily pursuit. And we'll see three things in this chapter that we really want to give our attention to. First, that daily pursuit requires letting go of self-righteousness. That's the bulk of verses 1 through 15. Secondly, it requires laying down our lives. And third, it's empowered by the knowledge of Christ resurrected. So first, we want to see that that gaining Christ 
demands, requires letting go of self-righteousness. That's the first and probably the main focus in that, that fighting and pressing on that Paul is talking about. It's daily, deliberately, unreservedly renouncing all self-righteousness. This is so important to Paul that he devotes all of verses 1 through 11 to driving this point home. And he, and he sets this forward as something that you, you cannot gain Christ unless you have done this. Verse 9, I, I do not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, it is one or the other. It's either my righteousness or Christ's righteousness. Or verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So it's either that gain or it's Christ. One cannot have Christ while holding on to one's own self-righteousness. Now, when I say self-righteousness, I don't mean what, what many people mean by the phrase sort of a, a holier-than-thou attitude. We often say that, that that person is so self-righteous, and that usually means something along the lines of, of judgmental. And it certainly includes that, that judgmentalism. But self-righteousness isn't always judgmental. It's, it's much bigger than just judgmentalism, and it's much more pervasive and widespread than just judgmentalism. Not all self-righteousness is judgmental, though it does tend in that direction. The way that Paul defines it is simply this. It's having a righteousness of my own, a righteousness that doesn't come from Christ. And that's, after all, what, what the phrase means in its plain language. It's, it's self-righteousness, my own righteousness. And Paul says, having that is incompatible with having Christ. Now here, Paul is thinking specifically of, of the Jewish system of righteousness, of the sort that was promoted by the Pharisees. And most scholars think that Paul is writing this, at least in part, because there were Jewish Christians in Philippi, or at least around Philippi and Rome, who were still insisting on having some level of one's own righteousness to go alongside that of Christ. And so Paul says in verse 2, look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for what he calls the mutilators of the flesh. And so that seems to be the group he's referring to, Jewish Christians who insisted on, on circumcision particularly, but on the whole of the Jewish system of law as still required for every Christian. For God to accept us, we must have Christ's righteousness and our, our Jewish system of righteousness. And Paul says, look out for those people, and he calls them mutilators of the flesh. In the Greek, he's actually using a great little play on words. The word for, for circumcision is peritome, and the word he uses is katatome, mutilators of the flesh. And so he says, we are the real circumcision. We are the, the peritome. They are just mutilators of the flesh, katatome. And the reason he says that their circumcision amounts to, to nothing more than just a mutilation of the flesh, in spite of circumcision being something that God had once 
commanded. But he says it's just a mutilation of the flesh and nothing more. Because in the Old Testament, circumcision was an outward action pointing to an inward reality. And that that point is driven home many times in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Circumcision was never meant to be a merely outward action by which we have some kind of additional righteousness. Don't think that Paul is is now departing from the Old Testament faith. We often think of that, that righteousness was, was accomplished by circumcision and law keeping in the Old Testament by Christ in the New. Paul, right from the beginning, forsakes that. You think of Romans 2 where he says, even Abraham was justified by faith. It was never meant to be about outward actions and outward law-keeping, but always about inward faith. And so Paul says, we worship God by the Spirit, the way that God has always wanted to be worshipped. We are the real circumcision. They are nothing but mutilators of the flesh. And so instead of mutilating the flesh and, and making that the thing we boast about, Paul says, instead of that, we glory or we boast in Jesus Christ. We put no confidence in the flesh. And that's what that law-keeping really is. It's, it's confidence in the flesh. Confidence in one's own abilities to make oneself righteous before God. And that's the difference between self-righteousness and the righteousness of Christ. One is based on confidence in one's own strength, one's own achievements, and it's weak, it's short-sighted, it's foolish, because the flesh, go, the, the, the flesh is useless. As the saying goes, the best of men are still men at best. An honest assessment of ourselves shows that. We're weak. We fail. And self-righteousness inevitably means we have to stop seeing that weakness and failure and pretend that it doesn't exist. Paul says, we're not going there. We're not going to boast in the flesh. Instead, he says, we glory in Christ Jesus. And because of that, we renounce all confidence in ourselves. We look to the only one who's worthy of real confidence. And then to prove that point, Paul goes on in the next verses to show that that if he wanted to boast in the flesh, if he wanted to have confidence in himself, according to the standard of these Judaizers, he, he certainly could have. He had plenty to boast about on their own terms. Verses 5 through 6 list seven advantages that Paul would, would have had if he wanted to boast according to that standard. The first four, if you want to categorize them, are are sort of inherited privileges, and the last three are his personal achievements. So among the inherited privileges, he was circumcised on the eighth day, he was of the people of Israel, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, and he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he mentions the tribe of Benjamin because that in itself was a a particular right or, or a particular uh, privilege. The tribe of Gen- Benjamin, together with Judah, are, are one of the two tribes that, that stuck to the Lord the longest. And that's where the temple was found. Jerusalem is split between Judah and Benjamin. The, the city is split between those, 
those two tribes. So if you want to talk about privilege, well, Benjamin is about as privileged as you get. And Paul says on top of that, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was raised by Hebrew parents in the Hebrew culture from my youth. That's what it means to be a Hebrew of Hebrews. Those are his his inherited privileges. And then on top of that, he mentions his personal achievements. As to the law, he says he was a Pharisee. Now, that doesn't sound like such a good thing to us today because to us, Pharisee is almost a synonym for, for hypocrite. But, but that certainly isn't what it meant at the time. The Pharisees were just the conservative branch of Judaism. You had the, the conservatives, the Pharisees, and the liberals, the Sadducees. The conservatives were about law-keeping and, and following the word of God as well as their 600 and some additional laws. And the Sadducees were denying the resurrection. They wanted us to become more Greek and, and so forth. So he says, I was not only a Hebrew but I, and not only a law keeper, I was a Pharisee. I was right there among the theological conservatives of the day. I had much to boast about in terms of my theology and the group that I belonged to. In another place, in, when he's speaking to the Corinthians, he also mentions that on top of being a Pharisee, he was even trained by Gamaliel, one of the most respected teachers of the Pharisees. So here's a man of great privilege and great achievement. He continues, verse 6, And as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And that too might not sound like something you want to brag about, but we have to understand from the perspective of, of the Jews and especially the Pharisees, they persecuted the church out of a zeal, a love for what they believed to be the law of God, or at least their, their own man-made version of it. And so they spent their lives devoting themselves to, to destroying anything that might keep Israel from, from keeping the law. They believed that when Israel finally started keeping the law, then the Messiah would come, then the world would be changed for the better. And so this was their zeal for the law that led them to persecute the church. They saw the church as a threat to, to Israel's law-keeping. Just like many Muslims today, they, they saw persecuting the church as an act of service to God. And so Paul says, I was a persecutor of the church. That's how great my zeal was. And finally he says, as to the righteousness that comes from the law, I was blameless. And he didn't, he didn't just mean I felt blameless. According to the Jewish way of measuring things, he literally was blameless. There was not a law he was guilty of breaking. He kept that system perfectly. So if you want to talk about self-righteousness or personal achievements, Paul was, was the pinnacle of such personal achievements. If you want someone who can boast in the flesh, Paul's your man. He could do it. And that's his point. If I wanted to boast in the flesh, I could. But the reason I don't is because I consider those things to be worthless compared to the salvation God has given in Christ. All of those things, what they amount to when you put them together, is just flesh trying to do what God demands and beyond what God demands. And flesh just can't do it. These are achievements of the flesh that do nothing to earn any standing before God. They do nothing to take away our sin. And indeed, they, they require us to be blind 
to our own sin. So Paul says in verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted it, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The word that Paul uses that's translated rubbish is actually a lot stronger in the Greek. It literally means something along the lines of dung or worthless junk. And I think we have plenty of good English words that would translate that very well, but but you get the point. It is a very strong word that he uses, and he uses it on purpose because he wants to drive the point home. If you're going to be counted with Christ, you need to see those qualifications as worthless. They're junk. Indeed, you need to regard them with disgust and as abhorrent. You will either put your confidence in Christ's righteousness or you will put your confidence in your own qualifications. And if you're even tempted to put your confidence in your qualifications, consider them junk. And we can certainly take that point home ourselves. If we have qualifications like that, And among them, you could just as well list a a good, solid Dutch Reformed heritage or a perfect record of making it to church every Sunday or or a vast conservative theological knowledge. All those are good things in themselves. But if you can't hold on to those things without letting them distract you from Christ and, and your total confidence in Christ, then you need to bury those things Throw them away. Consider them abhorrent and worthless and junk. Throw them in the trash. Leave them behind as far as your righteousness before God is concerned. Because they will do nothing for your righteousness before God. And trusting in them, if we're inclined to do so, trusting in them will ultimately rob us of Christ. They will take our identity in Christ away and put our identity in our own personal achievements and inherited privileges. If we're holding on to those as a reason or even a backup reason why God will love us and why God will accept us on the final day, if we're holding on to that, that really is disgusting and abhorrent before God. Because God knows the reality of what lives in our hearts. And those things are worthless before Him. And so such a thought of of holding on to those as our qualifications before God, that ought to be abhorrent to us. And that's why Paul uses such a strong word for it. He says, throw it away. Flush it down the toilet. Those, Those kinds of qualifications are worthless. And you need to see them as such. And you notice also in these verses, Paul uses the language of of accounting. He says, whatever was gain, I counted as loss. And and notice notice that phrase, I counted it as as loss. So I didn't just count it as, as zero, as worthless. He's saying, my spiritual assets, in fact, became liabilities. They became a threat to my righteousness in Christ. Because insofar as there's something I put my trust in, they rob me of Christ. They're harmful. They draw me away from Christ. 
Instead, notice then where Paul's eyes are fixed and focused. He says, For his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain one thing, Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So I asked earlier at the beginning of this sermon, what is entailed in that effort or pressing on or working towards the goal of gaining Christ and being found in him? And the first thing that's on Paul's mind here is renouncing any kind of self-righteousness. Any righteousness that comes from myself, I need to work and press on and put out the effort to give that up and throw it away and put it from my mind. I will not put confidence in the flesh. Holding on to my own inherited privileges or my own personal achievements as if they were something that God will, will receive instead of Christ, it's something all of us are inclined to do, that seriously and dangerously undermines our salvation in Christ. So that's the first thing that Paul is thinking about. The second thing that Paul certainly includes as part of that effort and that pressing on is in sharing in Christ's sufferings and in becoming like him in his death. See if you can spot that in, in Paul's writing here. In, in the flow of thought in verses 8 through 11, he says, for, I have, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now jump ahead to verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible... I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul sees sharing in Christ's sufferings and becoming like him in his death as something that, that is necessary in order to attain to the resurrection of the dead. The way to, to attaining that is by sharing in Christ's sufferings and by becoming like him in his death. Now again, this is a troubling a passage. It's a troubling statement, especially for those of us who are well-versed in Reformed theology. You might think, how am I supposed to do that? How should I share in Christ's sufferings? And how can that contribute to, to my attaining to the resurrection of the dead? And what is, what is my sharing in Christ's sufferings supposed to contribute? Were Christ's sufferings not enough? Do I need to add to them in order for them to be complete? Well, we know that's, that cannot be what Paul means, that you, you must add to Christ's sufferings for them to be complete. Because for one thing, he's just finished renouncing all of his own qualifications. So we can't, he, we, he can't possibly be now coming up with, with some new qualifications. And furthermore, Paul is already absolutely clear in many places on the sufficiency of Christ's sufferings. For example, 2 Corinthians 5, he says, We've concluded this, one man, Christ, has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might, not, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul is very clear, Christ died for all, and his death allows 
all of us to live. None of us need to add to that death. So that's certainly not what Paul means, that I'm, I'm joining Christ's sufferings in order to add to their worth that I also might be saved, as if Christ's sufferings were not enough. But then how do we explain what Paul is saying here? He says, I need to become like Christ in his sufferings in order to gain him. What does he mean by that? Well, what Paul is referring to is discipleship. And for that, let me point to what the Lord Jesus himself said about discipleship. The Lord repeatedly taught that that true discipleship involves suffering and does involve laying down one's life. Look at Matthew 16. You can just listen. Verse 24, Christ says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So losing your life for Christ's sake is necessary to finding your life in Christ. Or to say it another way from those those same verses, coming after Christ requires denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him. Again, he says it in in Luke 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, here's what I take from, from those words of the Lord Jesus, and I believe this is also where Paul is coming from. Taking up our cross and laying down our lives for the sake of Christ are just part of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ, and the path that Christ took is a path of laying down his life and suffering for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of our joy. So Paul recognized that if I'm to be counted as one of Christ's disciples... I need to follow him. And that means I need to take up my cross and I need to deny myself and I will need to suffer. It isn't about adding to Christ's sufferings in any way or certainly not in any redemptive sense. It isn't about earning any status before God by the degree to which we've suffered for him. That's certainly not what it's about. It's about showing ourselves to be disciples of Christ. And it's true for every one of us here as well. Jesus' words are very absolute. If any would follow me, he must take up his cross and deny himself. Elsewhere, Paul speaks about being determined to fill up in his body what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And he doesn't mean by that that there's something insufficient about Christ's afflictions. What he means is that my own journey of becoming like Christ and bearing his sufferings is not all the way complete. I still need to add up in my body the afflictions of Christ and show myself in that way to be his disciple. And so, brothers and sisters, the same is true for you and me. That call from Christ extends to us as well. There's no way to to water that one down. It still today separates true Christians from the vast numbers of nominal Christians. Whoever is Christ's disciple must follow that same path. 
taking up his cross, denying himself, and following him, laying down his life, filling up in our bodies his afflictions, counting ourselves with Christ by sharing in his sufferings, by, by following him even if he should call us to, to death. And that's, that's just what it means to be a disciple of Christ. That's, what Paul, that's why Paul speaks of desiring to be, to be found in Christ so that God would look at him and recognize in his body that he is a disciple of Christ. Now, of course, there is a major difference, and I should emphasize this, a major difference between Christ's laying down of his life and our laying down of our lives. When Christ laid his life down, that served a specific redemptive purpose that our laying down of our lives does not serve, namely atoning for sins. Our laying down of our lives doesn't atone for our sins. That's entirely in Christ. But nonetheless, we are still called to lay down our lives, to be made like Christ in his death by sharing in his sufferings. And, and that's, that, that, that laying down of our lives is simply an expression of the fact that we are one of his people. We belong to him, and so we follow him, we count ourselves with him, we see ourselves as united to him. That's what Christ's disciples look like. They confess his name and they follow in his footsteps. Now, of course, that should immediately leave all of us asking, well, what does that look like then for me? Am I called to die? Am I called to, to suffer? And in what way, if I am called to suffer, is Paul calling us to literally lay down our lives? Well, if you think about the context of this letter, the answer is, it depends. It depends on what circumstance God has placed you in. Paul, for his part, was literally facing death. And he knew that the Philippians, many of them, would as well. Chapter 1, verse 29, he says, For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Or, as we saw last time when we looked at Epaphroditus, he says of him, He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. But not every believer would face the same calling. Taking up your cross and laying down your life and denying yourself, it still looks different under different circumstances. Some of the believers were literally going to be dragged to court and, and forced to lay down their lives for the sake of Christ. Others were going to keep living there, and they were going to raise their families, and they were going to participate in the church without ever being called to, to literally sacrifice their lives. And yet all of them together are still called to lay down their lives for the sake of Christ and share in his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. You can see Paul isn't just talking about himself in those words. He's calling all of the Philippians to do the same thing. He says so in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. But he doesn't mean that every one of them will literally die. What it means is they will follow the call of Christ wherever he calls them, in spite of the suffering that they may well experience as a result, and indeed 
even embracing that suffering because by that suffering they become more and more like Christ. They show themselves to be Christ's disciples. And by it, they also show the surpassing worth of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You might take the the Hebrew Christians also as an example. That's the ones mentioned in the book of Hebrews The author says in Hebrews 10, verse 32, Recall the former days when after you you were enlightened by the gospel, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. That's Paul. That's some of the Philippians. And sometimes by being partners with those so treated. That was the calling for many others in Philippi. They were called to be partners with those who were suffering in prison or being killed. The calling was not to to go out there and, and see if they could do their best to get themselves arrested or killed. That isn't the point, and that isn't the Lord Jesus' point either when he says, take up your cross and follow me. The calling was to say, I am a disciple of Christ, and so I will go where my Lord calls me. And if he calls to my if he calls me to suffering, then I know that it's nothing more than my Lord himself has done for me. Now, make, make no mistake, that kind of commitment, that kind of discipleship, it will always involve suffering. There's no Christian who doesn't experience suffering for the sake of Christ to one degree or another. That's always the case. Every, every true disciple suffers for the sake of Christ, and every true disciple ought to be prepared even to pay the ultimate price, to lay down their life for the sake of Christ. That's very much part of what it means to take up your cross and follow him. No Christian should, should live unprepared to lay down their life if they're so called to do. If you want to be counted with Christ in his resurrection, you must count yourselves with him in his death. And if it doesn't mean death uh, in terms of persecution, it certainly does still mean using the life and the freedom that God has given you during this time, for now, to lay down your lives in service to Him, in service to His church, and in service to the glory of His name. That's what it means to lay down your life for Him, whether in life or in death. So what does, what does sharing in Christ's sufferings then look like for us here in Alora? Well, I certainly can't give an exhaustive list, and it certainly depends also on the gifts that God has given to each of you. But let's imagine Paul came here to the church in Alora. What things might he mention? Well, certainly it would include laying down your lives in service to visiting the sick and the lonely, in service to... To those who who need our time and money and attention and effort. That exhortation, you can find it all over the New Testament, especially in Paul's writing. And that that is a sacrifice. It takes time. It takes patience. It, It involves suffering. It means being in uncomfortable places. It means sometimes not knowing the words to say. It is emotionally taxing. Of course, it's also immensely joyful work. We should never think of suffering for Christ as, as a, a work that we do begrudgingly or a work that is lacking of joy. Sharing in Christ's sufferings means sharing also in Christ's joy as 
he suffered. Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he despised the cross. And so also as... So then also, as Christ has said, whatever you do for the least of these, you have done for me. Taking up your cross then and following Christ means serving those who belong to Christ with the time, the energy, the effort that we have. It's counting ourselves with those who belong to Christ, who are sick, who are lonely, who are depressed, who are suffering. They belong to Christ. By serving them, we serve Christ. That's part of taking up our cross and denying ourselves. Certainly, that, that suffering would also include reaching out to those members who might be drifting away, not just leaving that to their families or, or to the elders. That too is, is suffering. There's suffering involved in that. There's reproach involved in that. There's discomfort involved in that. The Hebrew Christians certainly experience that as well. Paul talks about, or the author talks about them bearing reproach or being partners with those who were bearing reproach. Certainly sharing in Christ's afflictions would involve putting in the, the, the effort and the hours and, and the, meaningful, the meaningful time to build relationships with those around us who don't know Christ, that too involves suffering, that too involves sacrifice of time, of energy, of emotional strength. And that means getting involved in, in their lives in ways that make it possible to bring the gospel to them. This too is a sacrifice. Certainly, sharing in Christ's sufferings and becoming like Him in His death involves sacrifices of time and and money for the church or for Christian education or for the work of mission. It's giving up what is ours for the sake of Christ. That's taking up your cross and following Him. And of course, it always involves putting to death the old nature that remains within us. That too is suffering. That too is a struggle. And the old man within us must die. That's part of the war that we're called to wage for the sake of Christ. Our jealousies, our, our rivalries, our tendencies to exalt ourselves, our, our inward lust, our, our hatred, our resentment, the earthly idols that we, we still set up in our hearts that do nothing to sanctify our lives or to, to, to further the name of the to to further the glory of the name of Christ, those must die. And that will involve a very real laying down of our lives, a very real taking up our cross. It's dying to ourselves and coming alive to Christ. If If someone isn't busy putting those things to death, then they obviously won't endure bodily affliction either. And they cannot possibly then claim to be taking up their cross and denying Christ. We saw this last week as well with Epaphroditus. The reason he was willing to to risk his life and, and almost die for Christ was only because he was willing first to give his life to live for Christ. And so it is with us too. If we're not busy fighting the sin that remains in us, how can we possibly think that we're prepared to lay down our lives if, if we were ever called to that under, under a wave of, of persecution? And so when Paul then speaks of, of straining forward and pressing on, the effort that's implied behind those words involves at least these two things, daily 
daily renouncing any other righteousness that isn't from Christ. We saw that in the first point. And secondly, forsaking our old selves to be counted with Christ, to be made like him in his suffering and his death. Now, before we close, let me reflect briefly on on the thing that gave Paul the strength to do all of these things. Because it is a hard struggle. It is a high calling, pressing on to be counted with Christ. What gave Paul the strength to do that? What empowered him in that? That was his encounter with the resurrected Christ. You can see that in in verse 12. He says, Not that I've already obtained this, the final resurrection, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So I begin this sermon with the, the troubling fact that Paul speaks of his salvation as if it's not yet a sure thing. And there is some truth to that insofar as he's talking about perseverance. He knows he still must persevere. The journey is not yet over. He, he does not yet consider himself as having reached that finish line. The possibility of failure is still real if he were to give up running holding on to self-righteousness or refusing to lay down his life to be counted with Christ, those are things that really would jeopardize his salvation. God will only count those as belonging to Christ who count themselves with Christ while still on earth. But understanding that Paul... But we need to understand, excuse me, we need to understand that Paul is, is not speaking of, uh, from a doubt about the sufficiency of Christ, or even a doubt about his salvation either. The very thing that empowered his pressing on was the knowledge that Christ had already made him his own. So Paul's not speaking out of doubt. He's speaking out of determination. He didn't speak about his salvation as an uncertainty. He knew that Christ had made him his own, but he still didn't treat his salvation as a foregone conclusion because the race was not over yet. As long as Christ has made me his own, I belong to him. My salvation is certain. And for that very reason, I will, with all determination, fight that good fight and I will count myself with Christ. I'll lay down my life for him. So, brothers and sisters, understand this. You belong to Christ. He has made you his own. But now, in the words of, of 2 Peter chapter 1, since you are called and elect, make your calling and election sure. If you want to be found with Christ on the final day, follow him. He's made you his own, so now be his own. He's called you his disciple, and so now walk as his disciple. Learn to follow him by taking up your cross and learn to follow him by renouncing your self-righteousness. That's what drove Paul forward. It was knowing that the resurrected Christ had made him his own. It wasn't doubt about his salvation, but certainty that salvation could only be found in Christ. And so it was an absolute determination to make his entire life on earth one of of being counted with Christ. And that confidence, we should recognize this for Paul, that confidence that he had in Christ was made all the more certain because Paul had encountered the risen Christ himself. 
you, you, can, you can read about that in Acts chapter 9 where Paul is on the road to Damascus. And Paul testifies elsewhere in a number of places how, how dramatically that encounter with the risen Christ changed his life. He didn't give up his former life in Judaism and all the, the privileges and achievements that he had because he was somehow left with this feeling of inadequacy. No, he was very self-sufficient. He was very pleased with himself. It wasn't some, some sort of angst or, or doubt about whether all those things were enough. The only thing that turned Paul around was he encountered the risen Christ. He, he was stopped in his tracks. His life was turned completely around when Christ encountered him. And you can see what an effect that had on Paul by the way that he, he continues to now come back to Christ's resurrection. That's where he sees the power of God in verse 10, for example, that I may know, I, I count all these things as lost, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. If Christ has risen, then our lives are dramatically changed as a result. Or verse 11, that, I, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, you see the impact that seeing Christ resurrected had on Paul. Verse 20, once more, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. He sees the resurrected Christ always in his sights. That's what changed his life forever. It's being confronted with the fact of Christ's resurrection that changed everything for Paul. And that's the basis for our hope as well. We know and we've encountered the resurrected Christ, perhaps not as dramatically as, as it was for Paul. We haven't seen him with our eyes, but we see him with the eyes of faith. And we have the testimony of men like Paul whose lives were dramatically changed because of that encounter. So we need to see that in Paul. Paul saw in the resurrected Jesus the power of God, and that's what turned his life around. From then on, from that moment on, and throughout his letter, you can see Paul just living out of that hope in the knowledge of God's power. He saw that God had raised Christ, and so he fixed his hope on that fact, that the God who raised Christ can certainly also raise him as well. That was his perspective. If God has raised Christ and I'm with Christ, then no matter what happens to me now, God, that same God, by that same power, can certainly raise me as well. And so, brothers and sisters, make this your hope as well as you engage in that pressing on and that fighting in renouncing your self-righteousness and in laying down your lives for Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on the God who raised Christ from the dead. And then as a result of that, don't be afraid to lay down your life even if Christ calls you to make the ultimate sacrifice, which he, he very well might as the times in, in Canada are changing. Don't be afraid to lay down your life for a Christ who was raised from the dead. That God can certainly raise us as well. We know that God raised Christ and he, we know that he will raise all those who belong to him. So let us make our lives one of showing that we are his disciples. We take up our cross and we follow him. May the Holy Spirit grant us then the strength to do the same. Amen.